Thank you for coming to today's Friday Gallery Talk. My name is Caroline Elliott. I'm the manager of adult programs here at the Hirshhorn. Today we have Stephen O'Banion discussing Henry Moore, and we will take a walk over to the Sculpture Garden in just a moment. Stephen O'Banion is a Smithsonian Conservation Fellow at the Hirshhorn, establishing an artist video interview series uh, program at the institution. If you were here uh, a few Fridays ago to see the screening of the artist interview with Anne Hamilton, you have uh, you've seen just an example of the fruits of Stephen's labor. Stephen recently completed the Winterthur University of Delaware program in art conservation, where he, ma he majored in objects conservation with an additional focus in preventive conservation. He has also completed graduate level internships at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, the Tate, and the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Please help me to welcome Stephen O'Banion. Thank you. It's a big group today. Um, I think what we'll do is we'll start by walking over to the Sculpture Garden, um, and we'll start off talking a little bit about Henry Moore and his working process, and then focus on mainly three sculptures, um, but we'll certainly, if we have time, can walk around and talk about a few more. Um, if you guys have questions at any time, feel free to ask them. I'm very casual about that. I may repeat it again into the microphone for the podcast. Great. I think we're set to go technique. And more most commonly used three foundries, um, those being the Novak foundry, which is in Berlin, but he also frequently used the Singer and Fjornig foundries. Um, actually, this one's not from either of those, but we'll get to that. Um, and the Hirshhorn Archives actually has some wonderful documents. Valerie Fletcher, who is our sculpture conservator, um, went to the Henry Moore Foundation and interviewed John Fernham and Malcolm Woodward. And they really got some great information, um, particularly she asked questions not just about our sculptures, but also brought to light some information about Henry Moore's working methods um, that I had certainly never read in any book before. So that was kind of exciting as I was preparing for this talk. Um, just to give you examples of some of the things that I was reading, um, Moore never specified what percentage of alloys he wanted in his casts um, for his bronze sculptures. So for example, a bronze is typically made of copper and tin, um, but there's often sometimes lead or zinc in those as well. Uh, Henry Moore tended to leave that up to the foundry to choose the exact alloy, whereas many conservators might say, oh, I want 95% copper and 5% tin and nothing else, or, or make very specific stipulations. Um, there are also some other differences between the foundries. For instance, the Novak foundry um, tended to cast sculptures in smaller pieces than the Singer and Fiori foundries. So this, those sculptures, you can sometimes, they're often labeled, but you can tell the difference between them because they have more weld lines and seams. And also that foundry tended to cut out imperfections in the castings and re-put in another piece of metal and then make them match in. Um, so those are some differences in the way that they were created. Um, Moore's approach to patinating his work was also really quite interesting. Um, as a review, patination refers to the finish on the metal. So when you have a brand new cast, it has that, it looks almost like a penny. Um, it's bright and shiny. And a lot of artists apply chemicals to the surface to give it a characteristic color, um, say whether it be brown or green. Um, and Unlike most artists, Moore sometimes had different casts of the same work. So he, you might make an addition of, say, seven. He would have different casts patinated in different ways. 
Um, so he did this to see how different colors would look on the sculpture, and if he particularly liked one patina, then the subsequent cast in that edition would all have the same one. But he tried out different things. Um, and he also sometimes left it up to the different foundries because he likes surprises, so he just asked them to patinate it and not stipulate what it should be. Um, sometimes Moore also chose specific patinas if he knew where his, oops, yeah, we have a question? No, that's a really good point. Um, the question was, do all patinas wear as well out in the elements? Um, that's another thing that Henry Moore sometimes took into consideration when patinating a piece. If it was for a specific client, he would sometimes ask if it was gonna be displayed indoors and outdoors, and that might influence the patina that he chooses. The other thing that he did specifically for clients was he would kind of take stock of all the Henry Moores in their collection and say if they had a couple green ones, he might make their next one brown, so that way have a more variety of his work. Um, so it was really kind of, there's no rhyme or reason really, well there is, I guess, some rhyme and reason, but he wasn't methodical with his work like many other artists were. One frustrating point actually for conservators is that Moore didn't keep a log of exactly which chemicals he used to create a patina on each piece. Um, so that would, be, would have been obviously so great because often if a work is outdoors, the patina sometimes needs to be redone or touched up just because of the natural wear of being outside. Um, we're in Washington DC, we have a freeze thaw climate, the conditions aren't you know, ideal for a sculpture. Um, so sometimes the patinas need work and it would be great to know exactly which chemicals he used and how he applied that. That's not necessarily the case for Henry Moore's work as we can with say some other artists work. Um, also in applying his patinas, uh, just something, uh, when you apply a patina to work, there's kind of two ways that you can do it. You can do a hot patina or a cold patina. And in a hot patina, you would use a torch to heat up the surface of the metal and then spray, brush, or stipple the chemicals on. In a cold patina, you don't heat up the metal. Um, usually you apply the patina in the morning and at, over the course of the day, the surface of the metal might heat up a little bit. You might wait a day or two in between applications and build up the layers without the use of torches. Most of Henry Moore's works were patinated in the cold patina process. So that's kind of interesting as well. Um, also, you'll notice on the surfaces as we walk around today, all of Henry Moore's works have a real modeled surface as opposed to a very even patina. Um, I'm just looking at the myole over there, that's kind of a more flat patina. You can see on this one how there's lots of undulations in between the greens and the browns, and that's characteristic of what he wanted as well in his work. Um, there's currently seven sculptures by Henry Moore on view in the garden. We're not gonna have time to get to all of them, but, but I think we'll focus on three. We'll talk about the king and queen, um, and then maybe we'll go down to seated figure, um, and maybe points we'll do after that. But um, if there's anything that you guys are particularly interested in, feel free to let us know and we'll walk over and take a look at it. Um, so right behind me, this is King and Queen. Um, it's from 1952 to 53. And during World War II, Henry Moore was impressed by the courage of the everyday people that were out risking their lives and, and how they were surviving in such horrific circumstances. And in, in response, he, he kind of shifted his style away from biomorphic abstractions and had a more figurative period. And that's kind of what this piece is a part of. And in the 1950s, he made a lot of compositions with seated figures and groups. 
Um, and this is certainly an example of that as well. Um, the subject here is the uh, king and queen, and this emerged as he was looking at a, a sculpture in the British Museum. And it was an Egyptian seated royal couple from 18, the 18th century BC. So that was kind of playing into this as he was creating a king and queen, which is in a sense another royal couple. Um, he, also, at the time period, we're talking 1952, 1953, I think it was 1953, was the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. Um, so that was certainly also going on in the time period and surely figured into his thought process of this work. Um, it was also interesting in the archives, I found in, uh, this is kind of moving away from the art historical aspect of it and to the physical making, I found a memo describing how the, um, all of these little scratches that go into the surface, the, the texture to the work, in this particular one he had used a cheese grater, so I thought that was fun. I don't know, thought I'd share that with you. Um, uh, you could have used other tools as well, but that was just kind of a, a note that was in the file. Um, this cast, as I said, he tended to use three main um, foundries. This one was done by a different one. This was done by the Galizia Foundry in London. Um, I've seen other versions of this work, um, particularly the one that's in the Tate's collection, because I had interned there um, for a while, and theirs had a very different patina. And this, so this is a great example of one of those series where the different casts had different surface patinas applied to them. Um, the one in the Tate's collection lived most of its life indoors, and it has kind of a honey warm color. Uh, it's, it's more of a golden-y tones in some places, and that's particularly noticeable in theirs on the highlights, like the heads, the tops of the thighs, and the tops of the arms. Yes? So the question is, do all bronzes turn green outside at some point? Um, Specifically green, not necessarily. It really depends on the environment where they're in. All of the metals, if it's bronze, it's gonna oxidize, so it will darken or change color in some way. It's not gonna stay that preserved, polished color unless you do put some sort of a protective coating on it, um, which is, say, the case with the Pomodoro on the other side of the sculpture garden, which is the round spherical sculpture, that has a coating to protect the highly polished surface. Um, left out to weather, it really depends on the alloy of the metal and the environmental conditions that it's exposed to to determine exactly what color that would occur naturally. But what these artists are doing is they're applying chemicals directly after it's fabricated. And even the patinas that are applied by the artists, despite the fact that they're waxed, they're still going to age differently. Um, so some of them will often become a little bit darker, a little bit more muted than when, say, this was first... Uh, when this was first patinated, it was likely, I actually saw the pictures, it was much brighter, and so it's darkened over time. And the application of wax also tends to mute some of the tones as well. So this sculpture, just talk about the history of this sculpture's lifetime, it was a, it, it was acquired by Joseph Hirshhorn, and it lived at his Connecticut estate before it came into the museum's collection, which was created in, I think, 1966. Um, the sculpture garden opened in 1974, and this was part of the original um, installation of sculptures there. Um, but, however, by the late 70s, that's about two decades after the sculpture had been continuously displayed outside um, in the harsh freeze-thaw climates of Connecticut and Washington, D.C., it was noticed that there were starting to be some structural problems with artwork. So as a result, the piece was moved indoors and displayed there. And I, Caitlin has some images of the sculpture when it was displayed indoors, if you maybe want to pass that around and show some of the 
the pictures. Um, you can see in those pictures some of the condition issues that were occurring. Um, this was done by conservatives previous to me being here, so I'm going by the file. Um, but there was a crack in one of the proper right arms and there was a fissure, or one of the left arms, and in the, a fissure in one of the right arms. Um, and there was also some residual core investment um, that was beginning to show up around the figure's feet. And just to describe what investment is, when you are casting a bronze, um, you have in the mold an outside and also an inside core. And the inside core makes it so that way you can have a hollow sculpture, so that way you're not pouring a solid bronze life-size figure. Um, and I think what happened in this sculpture is that the inside materials, so the investment, as well as some inner armature ferrous rods and bolts weren't fully removed from the sculpture. And so as a result of time, that was causing some white products to form around the feet um, and also some staining from the ferrous elements as well. After extensive research, um, and that's all documented in the conservation files, uh, this went through a treatment, and they had to dismantle the sculpture and remove that investment that was inside of it, as well as the ferrous um, materials as well. I think they had five buckets full of material that they removed, um, gallon-sized buckets. Uh, so there's a lot in there. And then they also, the, the cracks, they were all repaired by welding um, and then chased down to match again the outside surface texture. And there is, if some, if this is actually something that you can see in the sculpture, if you want to come back, you can see to allow moisture that gets into the sculpture to come back out, there were what we call weep holes drilled underneath the seat. So these basically allow moisture to come out of the sculpture. If these weep holes weren't there, that moisture would be trapped inside the sculpture. And when the water freezes in the winter, the, the water would expand to become ice, and that can cause a lot of problems in a sculpture because it could cause more fractures. Um, so that's there as a preventative measure to prevent more damage to the sculpture. Um, and after all this structural work was done, the, it, there needed to be work done on the surface of the uh, work to restore the patina in areas where it had been um, treated. So they went, then went through, in conjunction with our curators and the Henry Moore Foundation, repatinated the work. Um, and so that, that's the surface that we're seeing on it today. So do you guys have any more questions about this sculpture before we maybe talk about another one? Okay, so I think we'll head right down the ramp and we'll go next to Seated Woman. Okay, I think everybody, just about everybody is over here now. We're standing in front of Seated Woman, and this is a work from 1956 to 57. This particular sculpture was cast in 1962. Um, and the sculpture is really in two components. One is the seated figure, which is the lost wax casted bronze, and then it's sitting on a bench, and the bench is constructed very differently than the lost wax te technique that we explained earlier. Um, it's actually, the bench is a hollow rectangular wood construction that was fabricated in three different sections. And then over the wood, um, there was applied a thin copper metal sheet. And I think Caitlin has some images to, that show that construction. Um, and that's kind of interesting because it really separates the seated figure from the bench that it's seated on. Um, also noting the two different surface finishes, the bench is much darker versus the blue-green figure. It was noticed at one point that the armature 
uh, that the seating was beginning to sag a little bit, and this was a result of the wooden armature that was inside the bench was beginning to corrode because it was continually exposed to moisture. So this actually went through a conservation treatment that replaced the wooden armature. When they replaced it though, thinking in advance, they did so with cedar wood, which is much more resistant to water and rot, and also pressure-treated lumber. So hopefully it should be much more secure going forward. Um, and there's some images there of the before and after treatment of the wooden armature underneath the copper plating. Um, also again, in this case, they drilled weep, weep holes and removed some um, investment from the figure. This work also needed work done on the patina of the figure, and but it's one of those really rare cases for Henry Moore where there was concrete evidence as to exactly what the artwork should look like. In Henry Moore, the Henry Moore Foundation archives, they had a color photograph of this exact casting, not another one from the series, that was taken just after patination that was accompanied by a letter from Henry Moore saying that he had just redone the patina to look exactly the way he liked it. Um, so that's kind of one of those things that you don't get very often, so they knew exactly what they were aiming for in the color of this artwork when they were doing the repatination. Um, I don't know, I, I, when I was looking at this, I immediately thought that it was a pregnant woman because it kind of looks like she has a baby, like literally in her stomach, kind of pushed to one side. So when I was reading through the literature, I was expecting it to have other names of like seated pregnant woman. And, and I'm surprised that some people acknowledge the fact that she looks pregnant and whereas other publications didn't even mention it at all. So I don't know, I guess that's kind of up to your own interpretation as to how that looks to you. Um, but you can see this is another one of those, it's still quite representational of the figure, um, but it is in, in an abstracted form. And we're gonna now look, at, for our third sculpture that we're gonna look at, we're gonna look at one that's quite later in date and see how Henry Moore's style changed. Um, so we'll start, go around to the apron of the uh, sculpture garden now. Okay, so there's a little bit of road noise here, so I'll try to speak up. Apologies for that. Um, now we're skipping ahead in time. We're going to this cast, this work was made in 1969 to 1970. Um, we're in front of two-piece reclined figure points, and this particular edition was cast in 1973. Um, this piece was done in an edition of seven, and the Hirshhorn owns cast four of seven. Um, as with several other sculptures that we've talked about, the different casts of this work have also had different patinas. I actually worked on one of these in a private collection once, so it was kind of funny when I came to the Hirshhorn that it was sitting out on the apron. Um, uh, some of the other examples have almost like a greenish patina on it. Um, the Hirshhorn's clearly has like a layered dark brown color. And this would have been made, there are two individually cast forms that are then attached to a base that is again constructed. Um, unlike the other one that had a copper base, this is a bronze base. Um, but similarly, you have two cast figures that are on the bronze base. And these bronze figures are so large that they would have been cast in pieces and then the different pieces welded together. Um, it's common in a lot of his works. Um, but you can almost see some of the casting lines from here if you look at them. Also, I think one of the things to really point out, I'm just gonna step over the chain here to point out some things, because it might be easier. Um, feel free to get closer if you wanna look at them. The surfaces of Henry Moore's artworks, particularly from this time period, um, 
are really undulated depending on where they are in the sculpture. So you'll see in a lot of the concave recess plates, there's a lot of grooves that are cut into the sculpture. Feel free to come, I mean, we're here with you. If you need to come over, feel free to come over. Um, there's a barrier in between the sculpture and the public. Um, whereas the more convex shapes are very smooth. And I, I kind of, when I look at this, I see that it's, it almost gives, it activates the figure um, and kind of gives it almost as though there's an energy coming from within the figure out that's pushing out, um, which I think is really interesting. But notice that he still hasn't abandoned the figure. This, the title is Two-Piece Reclining Figure. And if you look up at the top, there are three dots in that flat surface. That's reminiscent of the head. Um, so he's, he's still working along those lines, though more abstract. Um, and then overall, uh, I don't know, open to interpretation of your thoughts, um, but you can see how it's moving. What's that? Where are your welding lines? Yeah, I'm seeing one right here. There's, it's tricky to tell the difference between a welding line and a drip. Yeah. But look, if you, the question is where are the welding lines? And I'm just pointing to one of the flatter surfaces. Welding lines often take patina differently than the sculpture because it's not necessarily the same alloy. So right here you see this right angle that turns and it turns down and then up and across. That's one of your welding lines. And so when, even when this was first patinated, you might not have seen those, but over time as the patina, patina ages and matures, sometimes they come up to the forefront even more so. Um, and you can see this, uh, a great example of a Henry Moore is if you go to the entrance of the new, the modern wing of the National Gallery, they have a monumental sized one. And when you stand back, you can really see the quadrants almost of the different pieces of metal that were then welded together. Um, and so that's how this one would have been constructed. Yeah. Yeah. And also something that's really characteristic of Henry Moore's works is not only are the highlight smooth areas, the, the, the concave areas are smooth, they're also a little bit brighter. And you notice in the areas that are more textured and, and more roughed up in the interstices and concave parts, they're a little bit darker. And that's on purpose. Um, and, and that, you'll see that on almost every Henry Moore, particularly ones that were patinated at least in discussion with his foundation, because that's, he really liked the patina to accentuate the artwork and not be uniform overall. Um, and it really helps, he, the, he considered a successful patina one that helped you see the form. So if it, it kind of glossed over the form, it made it harder to see where the parts were in and out, that was not successful. He thought that something was successful if the shadowed areas really looked shadowed and the, and the convex ones really popped out. Um, so that's something that we're seeing. These are welding lines as well. This is, but made very differently from this, because these all, the welding lines that are in the figure would have been from lost wax casted metal that were then put together. These were just sheets of bronze that were then welded together. And this blue-green color, that's some corrosion in the, the welding material, um, as opposed to the sheets. Um, it's preferentially corroding there, which is very common to see. Does it drip? Yeah, so for virtually all of the sculptures, you're, you're constantly competing against drips. Also notice this one sited right next to a highway. So that's one of the re reasons why it's really important to have our maintenance program and that it gets washed and waxed regularly so because cars create a lot of pollution. Um, so that's something that you want to wash off of the sculptures. That's responsible for, if you look, see a lot of stone sculptures and they look like they're crying, um, often that's from motor emissions, um, very common source of, of pollution on sculptures. Is all sculpture 
the question being is all bronze sculpture wax normally? For, for the outdoors, yeah. For the outdoors, almost all bronze sculptures wax. Sometimes though, um, sculptures can be coated. Um, so that being, uh, they'll put like uh, some sort of a synthetic coating on, usually sprayed on. Um, they sometimes give the work somewhat of a plasticky look. So there's kind of a move away from that unless it's really necessary. Um, if you have the available resources, um, it's really advisable to wax them, I think, in my opinion. Um, there are exceptions to that. Um, I remember there was a sculpture that I was working on when I was working for the Parks Department. It was called the Harlem Hybrid. It kind of looks like a, it's by um, Richard Hunt. It looks like a big disco show. It's right inside of a traffic triangle in Harlem. And it had repeated issues of it being tagged with graffiti. Um, so rather than try to get it off every time on the surface with just a coat of wax, we went ahead and put a lacquer coating on it. So it was much easier to clean off the graffiti when it got tagged. Um, so it really, you're, when you're designing a treatment for an artwork, you're considering where it is, what are the resources to care for it. And this is even in the, the Parks Department where like here, there's a regular maintenance program um, that's done annually. Oh, that's a good question. Did you guys wax this piece this year? The question is, how long would it take to wax this piece if you're an intern? For me, doing it privately, I would ex I would budget at least an entire day to do it for one person. I don't know if you're working on a team of three or four. Sometimes it makes it or it goes more quickly. Um, what kind of wax do you use? I'm not exactly sure what wax recipe you use at the Hirschhorn. It's usually some sort of, it's like similar. Well, sort of. Some of them are similar to like a bowling tree alley wax. There's often a little bit of carnauba in them. The recipes vary. Some have some beeswax in it. Um, different conservators will like different wax recipes, but more or less. Um, and you can pigment a wax too as well. So if, for instance, there's an area of a little bit of corrosion, but it's not really, the sculpture's not to the point where it needs to have a really interventive treatment done, you might just tone back that area, uh, you know, try to remove the corrosion, but tone back that area with a tinted wax to give the work a, a more even overall appearance. Which, yeah, I'm sure that, yeah. Yeah. The question is, can people and are they allowed to touch the sculptures? The answer is no. <laughs> um, usually, it's, yeah, but that's the thing about outdoor sculptures that people don't know because, you know, the sculptures that are bronze and outdoor at the zoo, kids are encouraged to jump upon them. I mean, there's a lady right over there lying inside the Barbara Hepworth. Is she supposed to be there? No, you know, there's even stanches around it. Um, but at a certain point, you know, the guards can only have so many eyes everywhere, um, and that's why we do our best. That's one of the reasons for, you know, doing a good preventive measures, but um, um, that's just part of sculpture in general, often gets interactive with more than a painting. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Not advised to touch the sculptures in the sculpture garden. Great. Any more questions? The question is about iron? Have I ever worked with other alloys, um, such as iron? Yeah, you know what, there's a lot of other artists that work in different modes. A lot of, I'll notice a lot of iron or ferrous metal sculptures are often painted. 
Um, so that's a whole nother question of they also need to be repainted continuously because it's in an outdoor setting. And the tr tricky thing about iron is that it rusts so quickly. Um, I can remember I once worked was working on an artwork by the artist Plensa, and he makes these, they're almost like crouching human figure sculptures, is what he's really well known for, often on a large scale. And the one I was working with, it was all done out of letters. Well, they, the collector decided to seat it right next to, I think it was like the ocean or something like that. So you have all this salt coming in from the water. And so they had the sculpture remade because it was corroding so quickly. And they had it remade with um, a metal alloy that was meant for marine applications. However, when they put it together, all the welds were still done with non-marine metal. So all the welds were then preferentially um, corroding. So in that case, it's really, you really have to do a lot of maintenance to constantly remove the corrosion, to wax it, to you know prevent the corrosion. But you know sometimes move your sculpture away from the ocean is the answer. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Sure. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys, for coming.